0: SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all in one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA. NMLS 696891 brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC member FINRA SIPC
1: welcome to the Monday edition of on the tape I'm Dan Nathan I'm joined as always by Guy Adami and of course EY from SoFi that would be Liz Young she is the head strategist over there at SoFi welcome people what's up what is up
0: what is up on this Monday
2: Guy's wearing an orange shirt today. He's he's wearing an orange shirt and he's got a blue background.
0: Which what would, team which colors would are suggest those? suggest I'm flying the colors of the New York Metropolitans. Uh, by the way, currently on a five-game winning streak, have taken their three games under five hundred, turned it into two games above. That's how math works, Elizabeth. But no, that would be incorrect. I'm actually wearing my Dan can speak to this, my Carver High School Athletics, of course, Carver High of white shadow fame dan nathan
1: well you know it's funny i mean we do these things we just had david gellis on the pod and we did like a book giveaway leave a review we did when we had the 70s sports guy on remember him we did like a shirt giveaway because he's got a great shirt store and i just figured if there was one shirt that was in his store that just spoke to guy adami it was carver high because that was a show that you just lived on hey guy adami Congrats also to your third child just graduated from the Georgetown University. That is also your alma mater. That would be the third in three years of your three children that have graduated from that university. So shout out to Linda and Guy Adami for just doing a job here over the last 20 some years because that is fabulous. So congrats
0: to your whole family. That we budget. appreciate that. We've been on quite the roll. Now we're through the college years which officially now makes me an old son of a bitch. But you know what, Dan, as you both, you know, and Elizabeth knows, and our audience has come to realize, I've been an old son of a bitch since the early 1960s. Since
2: 15, I'm pretty yeah. sure.
0: Well, since you were a
1: young son of a bitch, <laughs> to be honest with you. All right, so moving on. Hey, Liz. So we got a big week here. Um, we get we get the week started out. There's just Fed speak. We got Fed minutes on Wednesday. We got Laurie Logan. You know, last late last week from Dallas. We got Bullard this morning. It seems like the Fed is remains fairly. Fairly hawkish here, um, and it's interesting because we come in on this morning here, and we got debt ceiling, you know, that people were kind of excited about, all geeked up, as Guy might say, late last week, McCarthy and Biden might have had the framework for some sort of agreement to raise that debt ceiling, and then we have all this Fed FedSeek that seems... um quite hawkish, as I just mentioned here. And, you know, the markets are like unchanged for all intents and purposes here. Talk to me about just like sentiment right here, because it just doesn't seem like there are any headlines out there that are going to punch a hole in the stock market rally. We have the S&P that's up a little more than 9% of the year. We have the NASDAQ that's up 21% of the year. We have the NASDAQ 100 that's up 26% on the year. Um, It seems like it is all systems go right here.
2: Yeah, I mean it does, but we still can't seem to get above that that little forty two hundred level on the SP. I know we did it intraday, but we never closed above it. So we've got, like you said, a lot of a lot of yakking coming up this week, a lot of a lot of jaws flapping. And in a period where we can't decisively find our way necessarily above a certain level nor below a certain level, that yakking has the opportunity to create some volatility because I think honestly, the market is looking for a reason to do something. And one of the interesting things too, despite the rally, you have to look under the surface. You always have to look under the surface. So despite the rally, you look at the S&P, still less than 50% of the names are trading above their 200 day moving average. You see things like most recently, the equal weight S&P actually weakening and the cap weighted S&P strengthening. So what does that mean? When the equal weight is weakening, it means that the average stock or most of the stocks in the index are actually not doing very well. And it's just those big ones that are driving this upward. So not a ton of strength or durability under the surface. And lastly, when you look at just the data that's coming out this week, aside from Fed speak, not a whole lot going on today, but the really important stuff, at least the stuff that I will watch most closely, things like PCE that comes out on Friday right into a holiday weekend. So it has the propensity to kind of get buried into that durable goods. I've mentioned that quite a few times. You think about durable goods as a leading indicator of what could happen in the next few months in the actual consumer sector and those are important things to pay attention to so we'll get a good read but you know holiday week a lot of times these are kind of quiet not a whole lot of activity going on we probably end the week with thin trading which again could end up being pretty boring and I wouldn't mind a boring holiday weekend in the markets but On the other side of it, we have debt ceiling heating right back up again.
0: Debt ceiling thing, we've talked about, I think, ad nauseum here. And I'll say this, you know, I do think there's a faction, and I'll say it on the Republican side, at least, that fringe group that wants to push the envelope here and I think is sort of hell bent on things getting worse before they get better. And we've talked about Speaker McCarthy and you know, he's trying to answer to. Uh, a number of different groups, not least of which that group that it can think controls his fate. But I found it interesting a couple of weeks ago when president the former President Trump did that CNN interview, that town hall, and talked about the debt ceiling and basically saying, You know what? Let it go. Let it fail. It was much ado about nothing effectively I'm paraphrasing because it's sooner or later it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And I think there were some people that probably picked up on that. So, It's remarkable to me that we're still at 4,200 in the S&P with the White House, I think, talking about the potential for a 40 to 45% decline in the stock market if this was breached. Obviously, Janet Yellen seems to talk every five minutes about this, yet the market doesn't seem to care. Now, I think it's predicated on the fact that nobody believes we're going to get to that point and push that envelope. Maybe it'll get close, but they're not going to breach it But I got to tell you something with each passing day and the more and more rhetoric into a holiday weekend, you have to at least have some level of concern that this thing gets worse before it gets better. You know, it's interesting that Liz mentioned, Guy,
1: just the spread between the market cap weight and the equal weight S&P. And we also have highlighted this on many occasions that the Russell 2000, the small caps can't get out of their own way, right? So that's a pretty decent indicator of what the immediate impact might be on, you know, companies of smaller size in in the near term, if there was, you know, some sort of fear of default and credit, which is already really tightened, you know, for a whole host of reasons. And we know why, given the regional banking crisis and what's going on there. But it's interesting, like, a day like today, you know, Alphabet is up 2%. It has rallied 15% in two weeks since its Google I.O. conference. We're seeing Microsoft at 321, very near, you know, its 52-week highs. NVIDIA, and, in this, and we're going to get to the chips here, there's plenty of news why NVIDIA might be weak in front of its earnings report that comes out Wednesday after the close. That stock was down, like I said, nearly 2%. Now it's unchanged on the day. So when you have these huge contributors right to the SP market cap weight, to me it's showing a different level of concern by market participants, at least as it relates to equities, where they want to place their bets right now, especially in a market that um, feels like it's it's, it's in bull market mode. The one thing, though, Guy, and I really want you to hit on this one. I mean, you've been talking about for two years now the volatility in the Treasury market. I mean, look at the two-year, okay? Like, and this goes back to kind of the Fed speak, I think, in a way. I mean, like, unusually hawkish, given what we've just spent the last two weeks talking about inflation, you know, a little bit. But look at this two-year Treasury year at 4.3%. It was trading at 3.65% just a few weeks ago here. Talk to me about that and how market participants are pricing for, I I guess, just a higher for longer, but the stock market and some of those expensive and largest names don't seem
0: to care. And those two things seem to be at odds with each other. I understood to a point why these high growth, high valuation tech stocks were rallying as two-year yields were falling. I guess intuitively that made sense. But with that said, another 60 basis points or so to the other side in the course of those two weeks that you mentioned should have thwarted that rally and it's done anything but. And you talk about FedSpeak real quick. I mean, again, they continue to trot these people out. And I'm I'm somewhat convinced that they're looking at the stock market themselves. They would never admit and say, my God, What's going on here? We cannot be more hawkish in our tone. You know, yet had Bullard come out and said the Fed needs at least two more 25 basis points hikes this year, two more this year, which flies in the face of people thinking that somehow they're going to cut at the end of this year or the second half of this year. Neil Kashkari, who, by the way, is seemingly wrong about everything, but he's talking about the same thing. And you mentioned Logan as well. I mean, over the weekend, those are three people, but that's, again, a laundry list of people that have come out and said similar things, that inflation is still a problem and rate hikes are still going to be necessary. And even if they were to pause, it doesn't preclude them from hiking again in a future date. But the stock market, for whatever reason, either doesn't believe them, one, or doesn't seem to care about a number of things, two. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense because with each passing day, the market to me gets more and more expensive. And again, I'll say it for the hundredth time, So much of this rally, and when I say so much, I would say at least 75%, if not more of this rally, is basically on the back of multiple expansion, because it's got nothing to do with uh, earnings growth, revenue growth, or any of the fundamental stories that should be supportive of the market.
2: You know what's really weird about the fact that it's multiple expansion is if we rewind, let's say, a month and a half, the market was pricing in three to four cuts by the end of the year. Now we're only at absolutely sure about one cut and a 60% chance of a second cut. So even the number of cuts that the market is expecting by the end of the year has come down, yet the rally continues, and the rally continues in those big growth names. So there's something going on with the multiples here that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Kashkari's comment about just because they would pause doesn't mean they're done, I would argue with, because Jerome Powell from the get-go has said one of the most important things to him is that they not make the same mistake that they made in the 70s and do this whole stop and go monetary policy thing. If they pause and then hike again, I would qualify that as stop and go. I think he's trying to avoid that at all costs. I actually think they will pause and be done, but I think there's a higher likelihood not higher likelihood of what i'm saying higher likelihood than what kashkari is saying of them hiking again and over hiking and then stopping i don't think we're going to get this stop start thing so we'll see what what Powell says in june but i really don't think that that's a possibility when you look at what's happening in things like big cap tech small cap everything under the surface including transports versus the dow The cyclical signals and and even things like metals right look at the copper gold ratio look at what's happening with lumber the cyclical signals are just not there but here's the thing we go into memorial day weekend we start summer summer is usually light there's a possibility if we get through this debt ceiling thing i know i've mentioned this before on this particular podcast if we get through this debt ceiling thing and kick the can down the road until august september there's a chance that we have a couple months of this same sort of activity where we just kind of move along in a range, nothing terrible happens, nothing overly positive happens. We don't have a ton of news on earnings for a little while. That could be the case and we could continue to be frustrated.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that and we've talked about the pattern that we've seen since the start of, you know, this the the bear market in January of 2022. We saw these rallies kind of into earnings as estimates came down and then companies, you know, kind of beat lowered expectations and that's clearly been the story for 2023. It's just that we haven't had a meaningful pullback since we had that sell-off in March that seemed to be very focused. That was nearly 10% in the S&P 500 on what was going on with the regionals and you know, just back to this kind of back and forth on rate hike expectations or pause in June and then pick it back up and two more, you know, this year in 2023, I mean, you know, the CME FedWatch tool right now is pricing nearly a 30% probability of a 25 basis point hike in June. So that's going to be the number that will be really interesting. And again, I mean, if the stock market had sold off into all of this debt ceiling stuff, right, with the hawkish rhetoric that we have still from Fed speakers at a time where we're seeing, you know, the CPI and some of these other inflationary readings moderate a little bit, especially with crude oil can't get out of its own way. Gas at the pump is down year over year pretty significantly into the summer driving season. I think that's kind of interesting. So let's keep a close eye on that. And then just to your point on valuation, you know, our main man. Butters over there um, at FactSet, he is the senior earnings insight analyst. I mean, you know, he had a a tweet out over the weekend just talking about, you know, the S&P at 18.3 times right now is trading below the five-year average of about 18.6 and above the 10-year average of about 17.3 times. That just does not seem appropriate considering where rates are. And just think about what the average yield on the 10-year and the two-year or whatever you want to look at over the last 10 years i mean we are much much higher now you could say inflation's higher but inflation is broken and it's coming back in so thoughts on that guy i don't think there's enough focus
0: on where rates are relative right to valuations i agree with that i mean i took the math in college and a 4200 18.3 multiple suggests close to $230 worth of earnings which again you know i would submit we're probably going to be nowhere close to and the number's going to continue i think to sort of deteriorate. And the fact that earnings were not as bad as expected, I wouldn't say they were great, but they were better than I think the street was looking for. I think that gave hope. But to me, it's just delaying the inevitable. And I think those earnings revisions are going to start to come in on the back of 500 basis points of hikes over the last year. So we've talked about the lag effect. I'll be the first to say that I thought it was going to kick in a lot sooner than it has but if you look at some of these reports it is starting to around the edges and i think you're going to see it in earnest as we move forward into this year so to answer the valuation question you know an 18.3 multiple is probably even more expensive than that given the fact that earnings are going to come down number one and again the move indexes was something we talk about it's back on its horse again so rates once again are starting to get volatile and the market should not support i don't think valuations at these levels unless Again, it comes back to passive investing and the fact that, again, news is not driving the market and fundamentals are seemingly not driving the market either.
2: One of the things that continues to be important, price matters. When when yields are this high, when we're in an environment where we haven't seen rates this high in 40 years, price matters, valuations matter. There was something, I tweeted this earlier today so everybody can go check my Twitter feed on it, but I thought this was a really interesting way to frame valuations on a relative basis in the market today. So if you look at different asset classes like equities and bonds, and then if you think about even your home and cash, the way to value them, if you just think about what you have to pay for those assets today versus what you could earn on them over the next 12 months or so, Cash is still the cheapest one. So what you would have to, obviously you you pay a dollar for cash, right? But what you're getting in a yield on cash is a lot more attractive than what you're going to get in a yield in a lot of other stuff. You look at the earnings yield on the S&P, look at what you could get in a bond right now. Even bonds are more expensive technically than cash by some of these measures. So you have to think about that. That's not just a bearish statement. It's that valuations matter. To Guy's point earlier, this has been a lot of multiple expansion in an environment that actually is not friendly to multiple expansion historically.
0: With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right. Let's talk about the
1: biggest story of the day. And I think this is, you know, in the chip space. And actually, it it, it actually works into this narrative about inflationary pressures that might be on the horizon. We've talked a lot about kind of reshoring and just the diversification of just, you know, U.S. supply chains from China. And we kind of this has become very evident in this sort of tit for tat that our governments have been in. You know, we put an advanced chip ban on some of our companies selling to China. So over the weekend, China's government told operators of its critical information infrastructure to stop buying Micron Technologies products. And so what I think is interesting about this, the Cybersecurity Administration of China claimed Micron failed the review. This was like a you know, a security review and they posed a major security risk here. So, you know, this is obviously the largest maker or one of the largest makers in the world of memory of DRAM. And that stock is down three and a half percent. It was down about five percent um, on the opening. And it just kind of brings us back to, you know, the time where I think it was kind of late summer early fall of our advanced chip band and just think about how far NVIDIA this was one that was meant to be in the eye of the storm has come since then and you know guy talk to me a little bit about this tit for tap because we know that kind of reshoring or reorienting supply chains away from China is going to be very expensive right and so it's going to cause a whole you know this is great for capex but like you know just you know fabs being made in other parts of Asia we know obviously South South Korea is, is, is a big one. I know that we you know want to reshore a bunch of these jobs to the US, but that would make these products much more expensive and would also just be really inflationary in the near term. So talk to me a little bit about what this means as far as the ratcheting up. And we haven't even talked about what this might mean for some sort of situation with China and Taiwan, where we know a large amount of chips are made in Taiwan.
0: Lots to unravel there. So first of all, I'm I'm surprised if you had told me on Friday that this headlines would out and said, "Okay, where's Micron?" And then subsequently, where are some of the other chips on the back of this? I said, "Micron's probably down eight to ten percent, and the SMH is probably getting beaten up." I would have said that Intel will probably be the benefactor of this because Intel themselves have tr- trying to position themselves as sort of like this homeland security play, and maybe they're going to win on that front. Um, clearly, Micron's not down nearly as much. I mean, Micron, by the way, was a fifty-dollar stock in January. So this sort of sold off more. It's not, it's holding in there. But what does it mean in terms of the tit for tat? It Listen, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that this comes on the weekend of G7 conference that all the leaders were together. So I think that was obviously orchestrated for that number one. And it comes in the wake of President Biden talking about how in very short order, our relationship with China is gonna improve. So there's some sort of disconnect there as well. But the bigger story to me is, how much more will this rhetoric continue to grow? And who's going to escalate next? So is it incumbent upon the United States to do something? And my concern all along, Dan, has been, and this is for the better part of a couple of years, that the China-Taiwan situation has continued to magnify itself and grow in a bad way. Uh, US-China relations will continue to deteriorate, which they have. And in the middle of that, sort of the crosshairs, the epicenter the company with the big bullseye on their back is going to be Apple. Um, And I still think there's a chance that that happens. And if you think about uh, what China can do in a retaliatory form, it would be against companies like Starbucks, McDonald's, but specifically Apple, because it's sort of the manifestation and it embodies all of the things that they can sort of rail against. So I say stay tuned. And again, it's shocking to me that the market's not taking this more seriously. Now, quickly and I'll stop talking, I did see a few people say this was telegraphed from a few weeks ago. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's why it's sort of not a sell the news type of event. But I'll tell you something, whether or not it was telegraphed doesn't mean it's going away anytime soon.
2: I got a question that I I honestly don't know the answer to this. I don't have a strong opinion. Does this particular situation pose a risk to the AI bubble that we keep talking about? So there are certain stocks that obviously have been driven up by the enthusiasm, the expectation that AI is going to be the thing that changes our lives for the next five to 10 years. Valuations have gotten completely out of bounds. Now, this tension doesn't necessarily have anything to do with AI directly, but could it be a catalyst that pops that bubble?
0: Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I think you can look at it through two lenses. It could be AI could the AI companies domiciled here in the United States could be sort of the benefactor of all this rhetoric, and they're going to continue to be on their horse. And you know, this shows why these companies are so important. Blah blah blah. The flip side of that coin is technology is going to be, I think, challenged moving forward. And to Dan's point, and I think you would agree with this, Liz. I wouldn't say short-term inflation. If, in fact, we're going from a globalist economy to sort of this protectionist, and I'm using that term, that's extraordinarily inflationary. And listen, maybe that's the way the world is going. I'm not commenting on whether or not we should or should not. But if we, in fact, do, and more and more countries sort of take their ball and go home, that's inflationary as hell, and that just makes, again, a difficult job for the Fed that much more difficult. Yeah, you know, there's
1: another way to think about it, too, is that
0: if the Chinese don't have access
1: to, let's say, NVIDIA's advanced chips for supercomputers or for AI systems, that means that they're going to actually have to innovate on their own, right? And so, like, like this could force them to actually become a better competitor. The fact that they're reliant on our technology, I think, is really interesting. We know this whole issue about forced technology transfer has been something that has been a thorn in, in our technology company's sides for decades now, right? But like, when you try to fix those sorts of situations, sometimes you're actually giving the incentive to that competitor to kind of make certain advances and make different alliances, which, you know, we've seen China, you know, Belt and Road, you know, over the last 10 years has been something where they've gained lots of influence at really the the, the hand of our, you know, whatever you want to call them sanctions or or kind of pushback on, on certain issues here. So that is to be determined. And I think ultimately, I think it does feed into some of the. The tensions that are rising um, with Taiwan a bit. The other thing I'll just mention is that, you know, um, if you look at U.S. semiconductor companies and their exposure to China, it's not just selling into China, but it's also into OEMs that manufacture there, right? Qualcomm had, I think at the end of 2021, close to two thirds of their sales come from China. Broadcam had about a third of their sales. Intel, you know, nearly a third. AMD, about 22%, Nvidia, 22%. And Micron is the least at 11%. So when you see the sort of move that we're having in Micron, for a stock that had been really range-bound had just broken out to what a new almost 52-week high just late last week or so. So this is one that is not stretched on a valuation standpoint, and it is a commoditized product within the entire ecosystem. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they kind of focused on Micron and DRAM in particular here. All right, let's talk about what I think is probably going to be the most important event this week outside of the debt ceiling, and that's going to be NVIDIA's earnings guy Wednesday after the close. The implied moving the options market is a little over 8%. Here's a stock that's up over 110% um, on the year, a lot more from its lows late last year or so. And when I think about what expectations are, I just am hard-pressed to think that this company is going to be able to put up a beat and raise. Jensen Wang has been talking a lot. This is the CEO who is a much beloved CEO. And when you think about the products, you think about the innovation, you think about the areas in which they have been playing over the last 10 years or so, specifically the last five years, um, as it relates to some of the biggest kind of technological shifts. And you think about the need for their products, whether it be supercomputing, whether it be AI, whether it be um, other kind of advanced technology that we've just been kind of really focused on and even like things that seem goofy in hindsight over the last few years, whether it be crypto mining, gaming and the like, they're everywhere. Right. And so to me, the issue here is just here's a company that is growing far greater than many of their peers, but it also trades at, you know, 25 times sales. This is a three quarter of a trillion market cap company. Guy, what do you think the implications would be if this company were just to come out and let's just say just sandbag a little bit relative to where the stock has been relative to the valuation relative to what they see not just in from a cyclical standpoint but also from a sentiment standpoint as it relates to just call it you know
0: whatever this excitement is about AI they pulled forward a lot no kidding i mean and it's not coincidence that you know we've effectively round tripped the move so in november of 2021 again not coincidentally when the Fed announced they were going to sort of change course in terms of interest rates. I want to say the closing high in NVIDIA, and don't at me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 329.85 or thereabouts on November 19th. So for a stock that then traded down to 108 and change, we've effectively round tripped the entire move. To your point, three quarters of a trillion dollar market cap, 26 times sales. I want to say it's probably close to 60 times EPS or so, but I'm probably off by a couple handles. If they were to come out and sandbag, this is a stock that could easily trade down, you know, 12 to 14%. And that's not me being hyperbolic. That's just sort of looking at where it's been and where it could go to. So I think that's absolutely a possibility. By the way, for those that don't think it's happened before, it absolutely has. We've seen a number of, you know, 15 to 25% declines in this stock over the years, and given the run that it's had, and given all the enthusiasm around it, you know, I, I'm hard pressed to to understand anything they could possibly say that's going to get this run to continue. With that said, I've said that a number of times, number of different companies, and that hasn't been the case. The socks continue to sort of ratchet, but this is a company now that's probably Dan more expensive now. I think. Than it was at its peak a couple years ago. So you explain that one to me. Well, just to be really clear, when they reported their last quarter, okay, towards the end of February, the stock did
1: gap to a new fifty-two week high, guy up fourteen percent. But the stock had closed the prior day at two oh eight. The stock, as we're speaking right now, is three hundred and fourteen dollars. So it's up nearly two hundred percent from its October lows. And I guess the the focus here on this one, and this is one that I know that you know listeners of the pod know that I've been short. Uh, You know, I didn't shorted into that last print, but I started shorting it like $264. And here it is at $313. And that was just, I want to say in late March, early April or so. So I guess when I think about sentiment and I think about how tightly wrapped, and this goes back to Liz's point about the market cap weighted versus the equal, it's just a handful of stocks that are powering this move right here. And so Liz, I know we've beaten this kind of concentration argument to death, but does it make you as a strategist, you know, and you're trying to look around and you're trying to look for opportunities that relates to sectors maybe that are unloved, that are approaching interesting valuations to you or something. But the fact that there really is a handful of stocks that are powering at least the headline moves in the stock market, and and the further they go, the higher they go, the more stretched the valuation gets at a time where you're also looking under the hood. You said earlier that you're a nerd, and you're looking at the PCE, and you're looking at all these other stuff. Further, the spread that you have between this is the more danger that arises, especially at a time where you have a 17 VIX, and it doesn't seem to care about the potential for some sort of mishap on the debt ceiling negotiation, which also brings us back to 2011, where I think the stock market sold off nearly 20% from the highs headed into that. And so to me, it just seems like there's a level of complacency, but also a level of certainty about a handful of stocks where valuations seem to be getting really stretched.
2: Just quickly to wrap up the NVIDIA thing, I think aside from the actual results and the numbers, what people are going to be listening for is whether or not the CEO is surprised that the stock has performed the way it has. And if he gives any indication that he's shocked that it's been this way or that and they're going to parse his words, uh, you're going to see big movement on that. As far as the market goes, there are times over history and, and there have been times that this lasts longer than you would expect. But whenever there's big divergence, no matter what the measurement is, it doesn't last forever. And if you believe in mean reversion at all, you have to believe that the spread between big and small, cyclical and growth, all these different things that's happening right now, you have to believe that the gap is going to narrow at some point. The question is, we don't know if it's because the underperforming stuff is gonna get better or if the overperforming stuff is gonna get worse. I would guess that the stuff that's on top is gonna have to come in a little bit, let some air out of the balloon. But these spreads do not usually last forever. And as a strategist, when you look at things, at least for me, I usually start with the macro. What does the environment say? And even what does the Fed say? If you look at the projections that the Fed has given for the end of the year, they still expect core PCE to be 3.6%, I believe and headline to be 3.3%. If their target is two, that means they still expect us to be meaningfully above target by December 31st of this year. We're gonna get new projections in June, but still, if that's their expectation and we're seeing yields do what they've done over the last few days and weeks, These valuations are going to get pressured, in my opinion. So when you're looking at that from a strategist perspective, you have to ask yourself, number one, is the environment friendly to certain sectors? I would argue that the environment is probably getting less friendly to growthy sectors right now. And number two, how much do I have to pay for the expected opportunity? I have to pay a lot for the expected opportunity. I have to pay a lot for what I'm going to earn in those stocks. So not the most attractive when you then broaden it out globally, right? I mean the funny thing right now is Japan is like, gosh, everybody else can't get out of their own way. This is our moment, right? <laughs> Japan Japan suddenly is having this little breakout party, which I think that's something to watch too. It's it's interesting. It's a country that we haven't been able to talk about as an opportunity for a very long time.
1: All right, before we get out of here, let's talk about retail because I think we had a bunch of earnings last week. We had Target, we had Walmart. I think the initial kind of feeling, at least from investors, was one of relief that some of the inventory issues that plagued them for most of 2022 have kind of been fixed. But the stocks have not traded particularly well. Uh, Walmart had this huge run up, I think, you know starting in March, and it felt like a kind of flight to quality. It was trading with consumer staples. It's given some of that back here a little bit. I think it was trading 155. Now it's below 150. And then Target, you know, initially gapped up 3 or 4% after its results and guidance and has not only given it all back, but it's trading at like, you know, three-month lows or something like that. It's down nearly 9%, 10% or so from its highs about two weeks ago. And, Guy, we have, you know, Lowe's pre-market on Tuesday. We have Toll Brothers and some kind of housing-related names this week, which I'm just going to kind of throw into the kind of, you know, retail consumer sort of space. We have Kohl's, and then this is the big one. This is Costco. This is Thursday after the close. And Costco is really interesting to me because they were one of the first that I think a few months ago kind of highlighted this trend of consumers trading down. And they were specifically talking about a higher end consumer that they are seeing that they had not seen, right, in, in prior periods. When you look at this chart, guy, I know that this pennant, it's kind of caught your eye a series of kind of lower highs, but you also have a series of higher lows and it seems like there's some tension building here and this is a quarter of a trillion revenue company, right, uh, annually, and it's trading a, a premium to many of its peers, right? It trades about 35 times and expected earnings growth of, of maybe high single digits, of mid single digits revenue growth. We know that their kind of membership model is one of the reasons why it trades at that premium. Talk to me, is this the most focused name that you want to be on in the retail space here? And what do you think you're going to take out? Th- of
0: it? I think that's correct. So this is at its zenith. I think the stock was north of $575. I think it almost traded 600 in the spring of 22. I want to say mid-April of 22. To your point, since then, a series of lower highs, but a series of higher lows as well. And the range has continued to narrow. So you're coming to some sort of inflection point without question. Valuation has been a concern for this stock for the longest of times. Nobody cared about it. Seemingly, people care about it now. I think the fact that they have like a 94% retention rate with their membership, I think obviously that gives them the premium multiple. but how much of a premium should you get? So we'll see. I don't know necessarily what to expect, but I will tell you to your earlier point, price action and target now at a low that we last. so I think in January, to sort of put a finer point on that that you made is interesting. And Walmart and Dan, we talked about this on market call a number of times. the potential for us to have a double top around that one fifty eight level that came to fruition. And that's a stock that's not particularly cheap either. So when you have two of those retailers, again, not trading particularly well on what's been a decent tape, that's got to give you some cause for alarm, I think. And then you throw Costco in the mix, which is at a premium valuation. They really have to say some pretty extraordinary things, I think, to get them to break this range. But if we were to uh, sell off in Costco, you're talking about a stock that could potentially trade down to the May low. And you know the May of last year low, I should say, which was about 4.15. I think it was this time last year, the stock traded down to 4.15. So just be alert because these retailers, I don't think people are paying attention because the broader markets hung in there extraordinarily well. But the retailers, I think, are telling their own story right now.
2: I would agree. I think retail is one of the most indicative spots in the market for not only current sentiment economically, but consumer sentiment. And remember, consumers can change their activity, they can change their habits, they can change their mind on a dime. Retailers cannot. They have to stock the shelves quarters or a year in advance and they have to make those estimates. And then we have to rely on them for being correct about those estimates. And we saw earlier this year two really big retailers have a lot of inventory problems. And I think that we could end up seeing that again. You know, what the solution is for inventory problems is that you have to unload it at lower prices. So there's. probably two sides to that. You lower your prices, it helps inflation. But if they're lowering their prices, they're also lowering their top line, which is going to lower their bottom line, and so on and so forth. It bleeds through into earnings. So always think about it the long way that way. One of the economic data points that's coming out this week, uh, we're going to get personal income and personal spending data, something to watch. And then these little tiny things happening under the surface, we know that credit card debt has increased quite a bit over the previous months since the end of last year. Now the delinquencies are getting longer. So there's been a a slow deterioration, but a deterioration nonetheless in that credit card debt, people delinquent 90 days or more, which is the really problematic stuff. So there are some signals going off.
1: You know, Guy, you mentioned the all time high that was made in NVIDIA, and it was like almost to the week where the Fed kind of signaled their battle with inflation by raising interest rates. And, you know, there's another name, and I just, we got to bring this up for two reasons because I watched the movie Air with your main man. Sure, you, you love. I know you love Affleck and Damon. I, I, and then, no, uh, can I
0: tell you something? Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. Yes, I would, if I could hang out with a couple people, I, I, I here you go. I'm going to just throw a couple Let's in. Let's do it. And this Let's is not it. me being misogynist. This Dimaggio. is like a bunch of dudes I want to go there, play right? craps Dimaggio. with. No. People that are li- People sort of that are living right now. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, Leo's at the top of the friggin' list. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I, I think those two are freaking hysterical. I'd like to get like a Matt Dillon thing just because there's something cool about him. I don't necessarily know. I'm a Vince Vaughn guy. I just think he's I just watch him. He's hysterical. And you throw Tom Cruise in that mix. And if we could go sort of play crap, Oh, and then get if you want to throw just for shits and giggles, a Brad Pitt and a George Clooney, I'm all in. Let's go.
2: Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. A couple things. A few weeks ago, Guy, I'm going to make you so jealous right now. I was out for brunch. This was Easter weekend. I was out for brunch. Matt Damon and his wife were at the same restaurant, just hanging out, having brunch they were there for a long time he walked past me he came out of the restroom he walked past me i was standing by the door so i saw him up close and personal i didn't have the courage to make words or say anything and or he, take and a he picture, probably felt the same
0: way he because he's I, like that's he what was like head. oh my
2: god did you the guys way, see he's, a, this he's a short right?
0: little guy he's like he's not a tall <laughs> well, man i'm not
2: very tall so yeah, well, yeah. There you go. yeah and you also mentioned you also mentioned our two birthday buddies tom cruise shares a birthday with me exactly 20 years earlier oh, so okay. we're 20 years apart and brad pitt from what I understand, shares a birthday with you.
0: No, you don't. You know that it, to be the case. Don't exact, don't exact ignorance not there. Brad Pitt and I are born <laughs> on the exact same day. <laughs>
1: You know, you know, guy, when Liz just mentioned that bottomless mimosa brunch that she was on a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, th- this is a funny story. So Sarah, Sarah and I, my wife, um, we were headed, I can't remember, we were headed somewhere in an Uber to go out the other night and we pull up Instagram on my phone and we see like all these girls at like a rooftop thing in New York City. They're all dolled up, they're drinking up and it's Liz Young and it's it's what? Liz. Well, well, here's the thing. Stay with me here for a second. Oh. It's Liz Young's Instagram. I Follow two Liz Youngs on Instagram. There's a woman who's a great founder actually here in New York, She's married to my buddy Ryan Dennehy of Electric. And she and the girls were out in the town. We're like, we're yeah. kind of zooming in. We're trying to find our Liz Young among these girls. C- Couldn't but we figured it out. It was a different I was Liz Young. Say, I,
2: had, I had no fun rooftop brunches in the last couple of weeks, so it wasn't me.
1: She seemed to have a better weekend than you did. All right, um, but did. but but the last point here that I wanted to make is that Nike also topped out in, in in mid-November of 2021. And we've always talked about the premium valuation, especially if you think about it from a consumer discretionary or retail standpoint. And that stock went from nearly 180 at its highs, all-time highs, okay, in November 2021, to this uh, late last year to its lows at $84. Well, here it is right now at 111. It's just sold off about 10% in a straight line since that Foot Locker disappointment last week here. And, you know, I, I did watch the Air movie this weekend. That's how we got on this major tangent. It's a fabulous movie here. And you know what? It's such a throwback. It is literally isolating a very specific event. It's that how Nike was on the brink. They were nowhere in basketball. They made a bet on Michael Jordan, and it just isolates a handful of relationships, and it was really a fabulous movie. But, Guy, talk to me about this move in Nike, is this about China exposure? Is this about trade down and consumer? Is it about, you know, like what 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 do you think is associated? Because this company doesn't report until late June or so here. That's a really big move. And
0: is it one of these things that's kind of under the radar right now that we should be focused on? I think so. And encompasses almost everything that we've talked about for the last 30 minutes. So it encompasses valuations. Nike trades at 28 times. Now, Historically, that's not necessarily expensive to itself, but I would submit in this environment it's expensive. It deals with retailers dealing with inventories. I mean, there've been a number of times where Nike's had an inventory problem and the stock's gotten lambasted. To your point, I think it got as low as 82 and change. It was in the fall of last year. I think it was in September. It looked a week or so ago like it was gonna take out the recent highs of about 128 we made back in January, only to have the Foot Locker earnings report and then this stock is getting taken out to the woodshed in the next couple of weeks. The market again, nobody's focused on Nike because the at 4200 everybody's focused on the S&P 500 and the broader market. But if you look at Nike and say wait a second, you know the stock has bounced since last fall. It seemingly has a short-term double top around 128. Foot Locker was not good. Uh, margins compressed, maybe we'll see inventory problems at Nike and then On top of that, the things that are going on with China, one has to be at least cautious going into earnings, I think about a month or so from now. So I think you're right to bring up Nike in the way that it's trading. And by the way, this is not a small company. I mean, this is a $175 billion company, by the way. Yeah, and I just mentioned that the, there's a gap going back to kind of
1: mid-December when they reported down towards 103, a huge gap, and it opened the next day at like 116 or so, and then kept on going. And so I just think, you know, that's kind of interesting. The last point I'll just make is that all the focus on some of these shiny AI-related names, like look at how Disney trades, right? Look at some of these, like, Costco was also one of those premium valuation names taken to the bank. So I'm just mentioning some of these great kind of brand names, whether it be Nike, whether it be Costco, whether it be... Be Disney. There's no time for them, but let's pile into NVIDIA. All right, guy, we covered a lot yeah, of we ground did. here today on a Monday. And Liz, we really appreciate your time and insights here. So check us back here on Thursday. Liz will be joining Guy and myself for market call. Guy and I are going to be on market call Monday through Thursday, 1 p.m. We also have a big announcement wait, that we're we going to make about market call in at some point, but we're just going to tease that a little wait a bit. Second. Like the market wait, call. Film me in. Well, it's going to take a different iteration in june on mondays guy and we're just going to leave it at that it's going to be something really exciting it's going to be more engaging than our normal market calls just the ability to kind of talk to the people who want to kind of get guys insights on things and maybe hear me rant a little bit about the tesla and the and the we new can get to play some a music,
0: music on the intros and outros by the way i think the song june is busting out all over all over the meadow and the hills i think that's from like the music man but June will be busting out in terms of what we have planned, Dan Nathan. I I think I saw what you did there.
1: All right. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, Liz. We'll see you all back here on the Friday edition of On The Tape.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.